Well, I'm glad to be up here again uh, after the last hour and visit with you a little bit more. I'm really happy to be here, although I say that every Sunday. Um, Every Sunday, just about, I'm at a different church, uh, one of our BGCT family churches who has just lost a pastor. They are about 500 at any one time that are pastorless. So we got a lot to do out there, but uh, as I go around, I, I, I say I'm happy to be with you, and I am, because uh, more than anything, this is only 35 miles from my house, so that's just like, that's such a blessing. I can get back and take a nap right after this is over and uh, maybe beat you to it. So, uh, But I'm also happy to be here because God called me to this ministry, and sometimes I feel like I am the luckiest person in the world. Because as I go around Texas, I get to, well, sometimes see wonderful things I've never seen before. If I have a little bit of time, I'll stop and see some historical site or some place of beauty. But when I go to the churches, I get to meet wonderful people and see God at work in their lives and, and meet people like Howard. Uh, met him in the first hour. Uh, and, and it's just such a blessing. But I also got to tell you that there's another side to what I do. And that is usually when I go to churches that are in an interim period... There is often, well, there's some tension in the air. In fact, sometimes there's some yuck in the air. A lot of it's just kind of panic, but a lot of it is because in the interim, for some reason, when there's not a pastor in place, people can start to misbehave. And so I see a lot of stuff that you just, you wouldn't believe your mind, you know, just blow your mind about what what people get upset about. Uh, I've seen people get upset about things like um, what color the carpet was. I mean, they're in an interim period, and they were doing some remodeling, and somebody walks in and says, I hate this carpet. And next thing you know, the church is dividing. It can be something that silly. Or, or it could be something maybe a little bit more important. Like I've seen people saying, look, during the interim period, we need to change some things. Like, you know, why, why don't we start believing that God decides before you're ever even born whether you're going to heaven or hell, and you don't have anything to say about it? You know, that, that, that movement is out there and it's growing and it's something some churches are talking about. But whether a church is talking and, and deciding over things that are silly or whether they're over things that are serious or somewhere in between, when I see them get into a mess, what I have decided is that it is not the decision that they make that leads to them being in a mess. It is the process of how they made a decision. You know, I, I, I've decided that every church really is just simply one decision away or, or maybe one bad decision away or maybe I should say one bad decision-making process away from implosion, from self-destruction, from suicide. And often this comes up in the interim churches begin because there's no pastor in place and because people kind of get set loose. And, and so I've decided, Lord, if you could just help me share something with churches that would help them as they look at how are we going to make decisions during the interim. And and he's led me to some verses. It's in Acts chapter 6. I invite you to turn there. Because you have decisions to make. You have decisions to make right now about what will you do during the interim period. You need to decide if there's some things you need to work on. You need to decide at what point you'll start looking for the new pastor. You'll decide who goes on that pastor search committee. The pastor search committee will bring a candidate eventually to you. And by the way, that won't be soon. That'll be at least a year and probably longer. But but you'll have to decide on whether or not that candidate is the right person. You'll decide that as a church together. And then after the pastor arrives, you'll continue to decide where are we going? What are we going to do? How are we going to get there? So your church is full of decisions in the future. But you're one decision away from I don't know what. 
So I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to take this verse by verse, and if you're a deacon in the church, you'll notice immediately that the first seven verses that I look at tend to be where we get the idea of deacons for Baptist congregations, but I'm not going to talk about deacons today. I'm going to talk instead about the first time we see the New Testament church. You know why we have Baptist churches? Because during the Reformation... There were a group of people who said, you know, reforming the Catholic Church is going okay, but it's not going far enough. We want to get back to what the New Testament said. We want to practice like the New Testament. We want to be like that first church. And Baptists, we're not perfect at it, but that, that's our goal. And so as we look at these first seven verses, maybe God will direct us in these. So let's begin in verse 1. It says in those days. Now, what days are we talking about? Well, I just said that early church, but let's go a little bit further. This early church is just four verses, I'm sorry, four chapters past Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where we see the church really just kind of blow up in one big day. Thousands. We number the men, but women and children are also there that find Jesus, get born again, get baptized. How far along are we four chapters later? Not not far. We, we don't know exactly, but we're not talking years. We're talking like months. This is the early church. In those days, when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews amongst them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Doesn't that just give you goosebumps? I mean, that, this is one of the most feel-good verses, I believe, in all of the Bible and all of the New Testament. This, this verse just makes me feel so good. Does it do that to you? I mean, I mean, it does this because this is the first time the church is going to have to make some big decisions, but they're already starting to fuss about it. And, and who was this new church, this early church, this New Testament church? This was the church made up of people who knew Jesus, who listened to Jesus teach, who, who saw his miracles. Many of them saw the risen Lord, and if they weren't in that group, then they were people who know people in that. We'd call them the one-and-a-half generation. And yet, though they were so much closer to, to, to that time than we are, and, and though they were so much closer to Jesus than we are, they were having the same kind of issues that we have. And that just makes me feel so, so good. So good about the churches I go to that are having these issues. So, so good about your church and so good about myself. See, churches are made up of people, and people are sinners. Therefore, churches are made up of sinners. And when we disagree over stuff, I, I guess this verse just kind of leads me to say, chill out a little bit. Can, can we relax a little bit? Can, can we admit that we individually do not have all the right answers? We do not have omnipotent knowledge. We, we, are, we are human beings. But also, could we be a little bit graceful? And say when we disagree with somebody else, could we, could we forgive them and, and honor them for the disagreement that they have and what they think? Well, because we're just like this first New Testament church. Now, in those days when all this was happening, what was the exact issue? Remember, everybody who became a church, uh, a Christian in the beginning, they were actually Jews first, right? But there were two types of Jews there were what we might call the Orthodox Jews. So I got to take a family trip one time. We went to New York City. We rode the subway. We came up right across the catty corner from Madison Square Garden. And that was right next to this jewelry area where all these Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews, had their jewelry shops and their businesses. And, and there were all these men on the street talking. They all had all these big, black, broad-brimmed hats. 
and they, and they had black pants and black shirts and black coats and black shoes and they had these long beards and they had knots in the beards and I'm trying to take pictures with my cell phone where nobody notices, you know. Uh, well, these Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, they, they try to follow the Old Testament code. I understand in Israel that even though the majority of Jewish citizens of Israel do not even believe in God, they are atheists, the Orthodox Jews in Israel are still, though a minority, very politically powerful. And at least in their areas, again, I've not been there, but I've heard this from people who have, in the Orthodox areas, on the Sabbath, they have a special elevator, the Sabbath or Sabbat or Shabbat elevator. Because the rabbis who say don't work on the Sabbath have said it is work to push the button on an elevator. So you shouldn't do that. So they've programmed the elevator, so only on the Sabbath they go all the way to the top floor, and then they stop at every floor on the way down. Then all the way to the top floor. And you can press a button and break the law, but it won't matter because this elevator has got a mind of its own on the Sabbath. Keep you from breaking the law. So those kind of people, those Orthodox Jews, they became Christians. They were the first Christians. And we'll see that throughout the book of Acts, there's some problems, there's some tension here. Because there was this other group. They also were Jewish, but they were the liberal Jews. In Jesus' day, they, they cut their hair like the Greeks. They wore clothes like the Greeks. They named their kids with, with Roman names. They were willing to socialize and work with and fellowship with the Romans. And so when they were part of the synagogue, they had to sit in the back. You know, when they became Christians, they were kind of second class. You ever been in a church where there were two camps in a church? Well, these are two camps. And, a, and, and the complaint was that the preferred group, the Orthodox Jews who became Christians, their widows, were getting more than the second-class citizens, the liberal Jews who became Christians, their widows. And whether that was true or not, I don't know. I suspect it is true. But the real problem in this first verse is that there was complaining going on. And as soon as there's complaining, perception becomes reality. In most of our churches, with most of our church leaders and most of our church ministers, the first thing we do when that starts is... Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. We ignore it. We avoid it. We do nothing about it. And part of my life is living with churches that didn't do anything until it got so bad, it blew up and it was unrepairable. That's not a good way to start decision making. So what happens here? In verse 2 it says, so the 12. Who are the 12? My NIV capitalizes 12. That capital T represents the fact that everybody knew these were the key leaders in the church. There had been 12 disciples. They became commissioned as the 12 apostles. We lost one, but then replaced them, so we're back to the 12. And I believe that we could look at these 12 and we could say that these 12, they were the leaders of the church who could have looked at the situation and who could have waved their arms and said, this is what we're going to do. And that's how they would have fixed the situation. That's how they would have addressed the decision-making process that, that, that was possible there. But that's not what happens. Instead, the first time that the church is really seriously in, in trouble. Now, I know there's this thing with Ananias and Sapphira, but, you know, that was behind the scenes. Uh, the only few people were aware of what was going on and saw what happened. But this is the first time it's creeping through the whole congregation. The twelve bless their hearts. Thank you, Lord. They decided to address it early, as soon as it started. And then they did this. So the twelve gathered. Hear these three words. These three words will produce one-point sermon that I have for you. Now, one-point sermon is not necessarily shorter than three-point sermon, but, uh, but it really is just a one-point sermon. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples. Can you just, just think about that? All the disciples. That is, every person in their midst who was born again, who had asked Jesus into their heart, who had made Jesus the Lord of their life. Every one of them was full of the Holy Spirit. This, this is where we get the concept of the priesthood of the believer, that you, every one of you, if you are not ordained as a pastor, as an elder, as a deacon, you have just as much equal access to the throne of God as those ordained people do. You can hear from God. He can talk to you through scripture, through your quiet time, through a sermon, through worship time, and you can talk to him. But also, every one of you is obliged to do the ministry of the church and not just depend upon your pastor and the elders to do it all, right? All of us are in this together, and that's my one point. If you as a church want to go forward... And by forward, I mean you want to know the Lord's will, you want to do the Lord's will, you want to follow the Lord's will. You can only do it if you go forward together. All of the disciples, that means that all of you have the right to be heard, that you you should speak up, that you should get to share. But all of you need to listen to each other. Somehow, the Holy Spirit speaks in the middle of this bride of Christ, uh, the, the church, by all of us taking part. And so they called together all the disciples. Does it say they just called together people that were male? No, it says all the disciples. Does it say they called together only those of the certain age of wisdom? And you can decide what that is. Uh, You can be as old as Howard, or you could be, you know, 40, or you could be 21, or 18, or 12. You know, Barbizzo, I don't know what the actual age is, but, you know, all the disciples, if they had accepted Christ, they were invited together. What about if you were only on the preferred group? No, they invited everybody, all the disciples together. If you want to go forward in the will of God, you can only do that if everybody goes forward together. Every one of you is important as a part of the body of Christ. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect The deaconing, the word ministry here, actually comes from the Greek word deaconing. That's why we think of the deacons here. It would not be right for us to neglect the deaconing of the word of God in order to deacon on tables. So brothers. Yeah, it says brothers, doesn't it? No, no. You have the NIV inclusive version up there that says brothers and sisters. You know, in the Greek, there's only one word and it says brothers. So am I wrong in saying all the disciples was both genders? Is this NIV inclusive language? Is it wrong to interpret in the scripture that it means more? Let, let, let me try something with you. ¿Quién habla español? Manos? Uno? Dos? Si, si? Bueno? Yo hablo español. Yo hablo español como un bebé en un carro. Which means, I speak Spanish like a baby in a car. I don't really know what that means, but I wanted to use all the Spanish words I know. Um, now, now, if you're like me and you're embarrassed how many years of Spanish you've had in school and you still can't speak it because I, I don't use it that much, uh, you still will know what I'm talking about. Maybe everybody will. And that is, if I ask Kevin to come, I'm sorry, if I ask Howard to come up here and stand, I, uh, and I talked about him, I would say he in Spanish as L. E-L, L is he. 
but, but if I asked a lady to come and stand over here and I talked about her, she, I would say Aya, E-L, just like the man, but I, then I add a L-A, A, double L is Y, A is feminine, Aya is she. L, Aya, he, she. But could all the men come over here and stand now? I would talk about Aos. We add a O for masculine, we add an S for plural, Aos, them guys. If we had all the ladies come and stand over here, we would talk about A-S. A is feminine, S is plural, A-S, them gals. A-O-S, A-S, let's mix them all together. What's the word for all the men and women together? Okay, somebody said A-O-S, that's the word for all the men, but now let's mix them all together. What's the word for all the men and women together? <laughs> but, but we're going A-O-S, A-S. I mean, wouldn't it be A-E-S, A-I-S, A-U-S, A-Y-A-L? Um, yeah, yeah, you guys, I mean, well, it really, you're right. It's aos. That was exactly, we have the same word for all the men and women that we use for all the men. It kind of ticks me off because the women have their own special word, but no, we've got to share our word, which is how it is in almost every single language. And I believe here when the Bible talks about the brothers. It's like an old hymn that was once sung. Maybe you've sung it, some of you. Brethren, we have met to worship. We're all the brethren. It's the body of Christ. All the disciples, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We had this concept we talked about in the last hour, transition team. Uh, This is where we get the idea of what people who lead the church should be like. They need two qualifications. They need to be spiritual and they need to be wise. And you know you can be one without being the other. You can be spiritual and dumb as an ox. Or you can be one of the smartest people on earth and not have a touch of the Holy Spirit in you. People who are together in those qualifications are who we're looking for. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we'll turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and to the deaconing of the word. You know, it sounds to me right there like the 12 are ordering them. This is what we want you to do. But it's not. The 12, even though I believe that the church would have trusted them, would have followed them, the 12 in this model that the Lord gives us in this early scripture and acts in the history of the church, it has them leading by proposing an option. A possible solution. And how do I know this? Well, because the first word is in verse 5, or this proposal. That's how. That was pretty simple. And this proposal did what? It pleased who? The whole group. All the disciples, the brothers and sisters, the whole group. And they, who is they? It's all the disciples, the brothers and sisters, the whole group. They, they chose Stephen and then list all the others. And we get down to verse 6. And then they presented these men. Uh, who are they? Well, it's all the disciples, the brothers and sisters, the whole group. They, 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 they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Who prayed and laid their hands on them? In the English, it sure sounds a whole lot like... The apostles. My dad was an Air Force uh, man. He retired. I was finishing seventh grade when he retired. We moved from Southern California to Plano, Texas. 
Uh, I actually lived in North Richardson, which was in Plano School District. Uh, my senior year was the very first year that Plano Senior High was opened. Uh, the halfway through our year, we, we didn't have a cafeteria. We ate out of food trucks out on the street or drove off somewhere. But, um, but, but my first year, eighth grade, there was no church in my neighborhood. Canyon Creek, part of Richardson, it was just starting to be developed. My sister, she had gone off to college, was the only other person in my family that went to church. And so for a couple of years, I did, I did church by a Bible study with Calvary Chapel, where Maranatha Music came out of. We corresponded for two years. I did Bible study. That's how I did church until they wrote me and said, we don't have any more Bible lessons. Find a church. Well, and right at that time, Canyon Creek Baptist Church was open just about a mile from my house, and I could walk. So as I started 10th grade, I joined Canyon Creek Baptist Church, found out about getting baptized, and started going to that church. And while I was there, every person that ever laid hands on anybody for an ordination service, for deacons, for commissioning, whatever... It was always the ordained people. I, I didn't know it at the time, but really kind of a Catholic practice that got handed down into Protestantism. But you, you could not come forward and lay hands on anybody unless you had had hands laid on you. And that could be traced back all the way to John the Baptist or something like that. Um, and, and then I went to college. I went to a different type of church. I went to Waco. I joined a Texas Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church. I I found the exact same practice there. You know, all the ordained, please come forward and gather around this person and lay hands on him and we will pray for him. And then I went to seminary, Southwestern. I actually joined University Baptist right next to TCU's campus. If you ever have a chance to be over there, you can park there in their parking lot to go to a football game and help the youth ministry project out If while you do that. Uh, but people know that, so you've got to get there early. It's cheaper parking. And when I was there, I got called to my first ministry position to be a chaplain at a drug and alcohol treatment center. And when I got that position, though I was still in school, my pastor said, Carl, it's time for the church to ordain you. And so I went through this hazing ritual where you go through a, a, a conference with a bunch of people and they grill you on your theology. And if you pass, which I did, apparently they push you on in front of the whole church. And as we planned the service, the pastor said, and at the end of the service, we'll have you come forward and we'll have you kneel in front of the church. And when we do that, the church will come and lay hands on you. Everybody will be invited. They'll make a long line and they will lay hands on you one at a time or, or maybe a couple or a small group. And they'll say prayers and they'll bless you and, and recite scripture. And I was like, I don't think you can do that. And well, why not? Because the only thing I'd ever seen was only the ordained had the privilege of doing that. Only they had that special link to God. Well, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but my pastor was, and, and he helped me understand this verse. Now, I cannot absolutely prove but what I'm about to say to you, because again, the English is, is not so clear, but I believe it will make sense. All the disciples, brothers and sisters, the whole group, they, they, and they laid hands on them and prayed for them. Understanding that we have intentional inner ministry is that if the church is to go forward, it must go forward together. And that means everybody 
has the same place at the table to share what the Lord is saying to you or what you think the Lord is saying to you, but also to listen to what others say the Lord is saying to them or that they think the Lord is saying to them. And together as you wrestle with that, it's not perfect. We're sinners. We still make mistakes. Sometimes even the majority is wrong, but we have a better chance of knowing God's will and doing God's will if we go forward, all the disciples. Now, the best book that I've read in leadership ever, but certainly I think the best book in leadership in this millennium is a book by a fellow named Jim Collins. It's called Good to Great. Now, it's not a church book. It's not a Christian book. I don't, I don't think Jim Collins is, is um, not a Christian. I, I really don't know, but he wrote a companion piece that is for churches and nonprofits that makes me think he's probably a man of faith. But Jim Collins is not one of these business gurus that just writes a book out of his own wisdom and what he learned and what he thinks. Instead, he has a team around him. I mean, they, they do research. This is serious stuff. They do interviews and they look at, at statistics and they analyze. And in his book, Good to Great, he talks about what makes a company good and what makes a company great. Now, a good company is a company that makes a lot of money. Uh, their stock prices go up. Uh, people that own stocks when I hold on to those stocks, people that work there like working there. I mean, this is a good company. But to be great, this good company had to lose their key leader, the, the chief executive officer. And even when they called the new chief executive officer, they had to continue to make money. Stocks go up. People wanted to own the stock. People who, liked, who worked there liked living there. I mean, they had to change leadership and continue that upward path. But... Don't you see how many companies, I mean, this is in the business press all the time. They lose that CEO, they call a new one, and then they start tanking. That, that new person was supposed to help rescue the company, and they start tanking. And, and after about a year, they fire that new CEO, and they pay that person millions of dollars to go away. And I keep thinking, how do I get one of those jobs? I mean, I, I, I would, I'd give it a shot one time. That's all it would take, you know? But, but when I read about those companies, I read that what they often happened was that there would be a search team, often the board of directors, that would find somebody and say, oh, this person, wow, dynamic personality, just so knowledgeable, so assured of themselves. And three months into hiring, they were going, what have we done? We called a megalomaniac who thinks that that, that person is the only one in the whole world that has a good idea. And they've shut everybody else out. And I thought, that's churches. That's how I see so many of our churches calling pastors with no regard to what the church needs or what that person is really like and totally avoiding doing a background check on what the person has done before. But a great company, a great company that continues that upward path, there, there is one particular key ingredient that spoke to me about churches. It was that the old CEO and the new CEO both had a very specific and important qualification. And that was that they're s- 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 servant leaders. Now, wait a sec. They're, they're servant leaders? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about somebody over a major corporation? Yes. Somebody who said, yes, I have ideas. I'm confident in myself. I have knowledge. But I know that by myself, I will not come up with as good ideas as if we listen to everybody. So those people wanted to hear from their vice presidents. They wanted to hear from the next tier of management. But they wanted to hear all the way down to the person lowest on the totem pole. They had town hall meetings. They had suggestion boxes. They listened and found better ways by going forward together than they would have gone if they just listened to one person telling them 
what to do. Well, Ben, you're in an interim. You've got decisions to make. If you want to go forward, it's only going to happen if you go forward together. Now, there's a final verse. I, I could end right there. I think I'd be fine. You'd be happy. But there, there's a final verse, verse 7, that I do not believe can be separated from the rest of this passage. It obviously goes with the top six verses. And what happens in verse 7 is clearly tied into what was going on in the six verses above it. So I won't preach a three-point sermon, though I could, out of this seventh verse. But I will ask you three questions. They come right out of the scripture, and I feel compelled to ask all three. Verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly... And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's the three questions. First question. When was the last time, because of this church family, Willow Ben, that the word of God spread? Second question. When was the last time that because of the ministry of this church... You saw the number of disciples in Plano, Texas increase rapidly. And then the last question. It may make some people wish they hadn't asked me here. But it's not Carl Fickling. It's, it's the scripture. It's in there. And the last question is, when was the last time you saw even the leaders of your church get right with the Lord? Now, if these things have been happening, then surely you've been doing what's above. But if they haven't been happening, then maybe one of the things you should consider is, is it time to do something different? And the thing that would be different up above is that you together right now, as you enter this interim period, would decide to go forward together. With everybody invited to the table, everybody's opinion is important, but everybody also needs to listen to each other so that together you discover God's will and you do God's will. Nothing more and nothing less.